Welcome to the Career Up Now, socially distanced close-ups, Israel edition. I'm your host, Sophia Felsen. Today, we are joined by Rabbi Moshe Zeldman, who is the founder and director of the Israelis, a program where visitors of Israel meet with Israelis to hear diverse opinions around the topics of Judaism, Zionism, and life in Israel. He did his undergraduate at the University of Toronto, studying philosophy in artificial intelligence and has his rabbinic ordination from Eshat Torah. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. It's an honor to be here. <laughs> um, so could you please share with me your brief story of how you got to where you are today with Meet yes. the Israelis? I'd be happy to. Um, so I've, I made Aliyah from Canada in 91. I've been here almost 30 years now. I like to tell people I've been here for almost 30 years and I'm starting to get used to it. <laughs> In all my time here, I've been spent a lot of time teaching, lecturing, teaching seminars and programs, etc. But I always found it kind of limited because I never loved, I like discussions and challenges and sort of an open-minded approach to teaching much more than frontal lecturing. So after many years and many decades of teaching and experimenting with teaching, I came up with a pretty funky idea, which is what if you take a bunch of really different Israelis, put them in a room, break them up into small groups with a bunch of people that have questions, kind of like speed dating style, and give them 15 minutes to ask questions, go to the next table, ask the next Israeli. I tried it as an experiment three years ago. It was magic in front of my eyes, just seeing the liveliness, dialogue, the tension, the resolution, the, the enlightenment. It was, just, it was a really interesting experiment. And I just decided, like, this is it, man. This is the way to get people having thoughtful conversations about their relationship with religion, with Israel, with Zionism, with the Jewish people. And I've been plugging away at it ever since. I'm sure you have many stories around the ways in which you've seen people's opinions shift and transform during Meet the Israelis. Is there one story in particular that really stands out? Yeah, I'll tell you one really interesting one that just happened a couple months ago, actually. It was from a place I wasn't expecting at all. We were running a program by Zoom because of Corona. You know, half of our stuff is online. Yes. Now we, do, we do a lot of Zoom conferences. It was a group of students from the States, and they were online with five Israelis, okay? We had a leftist peace activist. We had a right-wing settler. And these are all, like, young English-speaking Israelis. So left-wing peace activist, right-wing settler, an ultra-Orthodox yeshiva student, um, an Ethiopian woman, and who was number five, and an Arab, Muslim Arab. The setup for the program was I was supposed to have this left-winger as the Israeli and he couldn't make it. Last minute he had something going on. So he says, you know what? I've got a friend, call her. She'll be happy to substitute and she'll go online instead of me. So I said, no problem, I call this woman. She says, great, no problem. I'll be happy to be online and do the program. I didn't give her much of a setup, <laughs> but she gets on and she starts talking and she's talking all about blind. And I'm like, interesting, okay. I didn't know you were blind. And I spoke to her, I said, well, we really invited you here to give your perspective as a left-wing advocate of Israel's policies, what do you have to say? She says, oh, I thought you brought me online to talk about my disabilities as a blind person. I said, no, I mean, you can talk about it if you want, but I want to hear what you have to say about left-wing politics in Israel. She said, it was so amazing. She said, wow, nobody's ever invited me to speak about my opinion about anything. They just want to know what it's like to be blind. And she was so wow. touched that I'm like, I don't care if you're blind. This isn't what the program is about. I want to hear, I mean, I care. I want to hear what you have to say. Blind isn't the issue. I'd love to have a whole separate talk about disabilities. So she felt like this amazing ability to like have a stake in the conversation where it's not revolving around her as a person with disability. And I find in general, that's what happens is, you know, the, the settler comes in to talk or the ultra-Orthodox woman 
human comes in to talk and you know people have all these stereotypes and you realize like oh there's like a real human being under there if there are stories like that all the time of both the israelis and the participants coming in and just like oh i didn't realize you're we a real human being i had the stereotype in my mind and it got shattered in the first five minutes and now i gotta like think more about what you know how to relate to you as a human being Wow, that's really incredible. That's so interesting. I'm sure in oh, teaching... Do you mind if I tell you one other quick story? Yes, please. It's, it's a little racy, but I'm going to share it anyway, because it's an <laughs> amazing story. You ready for this? I'm ready. You can edit it out if you don't like it. <laughs> okay, we ran a program last summer, okay? And it was a group of like high school students, American high school students. They were like 18-ish. They were here on a summer program. And it was a group of them meeting with my ultra-Orthodox guy. He's got black and white with a hat and the whole deal. He learns full-time Torah and everything. One of the girls, the, the group was generally pretty non-affiliated. The girl said, well, what do you think of me as a lesbian? So this guy who's spent his whole life in yeshiva looks at her and says, what's a lesbian? <laughs> <laughs> wow. So she said, I love women. I plan on marrying a woman. I have no interest in men. I'm not sexually attracted to men. So he looked at her and said, there's something really wrong with you. Are you crazy? Like that was his impulsive reaction. He had never wow. heard of the idea. I mean, I guess he, he had never met a lesbian. He was just like, that's like gross. There's something wrong with you. Like, I don't get it. Like, you, can, you should see a therapist. He literally said, you should see a therapist. <laughs> so she got up and just ran out of the room crying. Like, oh my gosh. Wow. So, I mean, she was, she was very, very offended, obviously. Yes, yes. But, it, but, but here's the magic of it. At the end, and she couldn't get back the whole rest of the program. She didn't come back in the room. She was just, didn't know what to do with herself. Mm -hmm. Over, we were all kind of breaking up. I was talking to the, the Orthodox guy. She went over to him and said, I'm sorry I reacted that way. I'd love to come to your house for Shabbat. Would you invite me? And I'm That's like, beautiful. Wow, like what just happened? <laughs> you know? Not like he changed her mind. She, I, I think it was just something, even though they're such different worlds, she realized like, you know, he doesn't hate me. He's not against me. He just doesn't know what I'm about. He just, that was mm -hmm. his reaction. So it was just this, in front of my eyes, I just saw this amazing bridge of two people from completely different worlds that I would never imagine wanting to finish a Shabbat together. And, uh, and he invited her. I, what happened after that, I'm not sure. But, uh, <laughs> but anyway, it was a really amazing thing to see in front of my eyes. That's really beautiful. I'm happy that they were able to talk about it afterwards because I think that's how we learn, right? Is through meeting different people that are not like us and really conversing with them in a deep way. That are very wow. outside of our comfort zones. Right. On both side, for both of them, it was like, whoa, you're on a different planet. Yeah, yeah. That really reminds me. Have you seen the Netflix show Unorthodox? Yes, I did. I don't know, I guess it just reminds me of how isolated, like very religious Jews can be. And there's a whole world out there exactly. that, they, that they don't know about necessarily. Yeah. And, and I'll um, tell you the truth. Yeah, I find in a lot of cases with those ultra-Orthodox Jews that yes, they're unexposed. And yes, there's probably some intimidation of like, you know, that's the evil secular world. I don't want to be exposed to it. I don't want to show my kids. Right. It. But there's also definitely a curiosity. And, and For and, sure. I mean, you have to imagine, not every ultra-Orthodox Jew would willingly join my program and want to talk to girls wearing shorts and t-shirts and have a conversation right. about religion. So it takes right. a certain type of open-mindedness, definitely, to participate. And certainly with the Arabs that join our program, a certain open-mindedness to, you know, to deal with Jews who are going to challenge them or mock them even or, or completely disagree with them. It's kind of eye-opening on all sides at all times. That's what ends up happening. In what ways has your opinions maybe about the Palestinian-Israeli conflict changed or shifted 
or has it, time that you've been doing Meet the, Meet the Israelis? So I'll tell you, every Jew has their own political opinions and religious opinions, me, me no less than anybody else. And I always like to think of myself in the back of my mind as a little bit liberal-minded in the sense that, yes, I have my stand, but it's more nuanced than most people think, and there's no clear black and white answers, and right. you know, it isn't crazy. They also have a, there's a rationale to why they feel the way they do. I always yes. felt that, so it wasn't shocking for me to see the dialogues, but definitely deeply reinforced that conviction that when you meet somebody who says, it's all about a one-state solution or a two-state solution or a three-state solution or throw the Arabs into the sea or, you know, whatever it is, or shut down right. the issues, whatever it is, anybody coming with any black and white answer is automatically disqualified from being part of a real conversation because mm -hmm. there are no easy answers to any of these things. Mm -hmm. I've made friends with many Arabs, many Ethiopians, many ultra-Orthodox Jews, many secular Jews, many left-wing Jews, many right-wing Jews, and they've become my friends and we're all, you know, we hang out together after the programs and we talk. And so I had it as a conviction theory. It made sense to me, but I've been sort of living by really taking these people seriously as people on my team. Mm -hmm. Do you find that a lot of the people that you work with or just even when you were starting Meet the Israelis, there were people that didn't necessarily want to have the conversations or was that not necessarily the case where there are a lot, the majority of people like, yes, of course, I want to have these conversations with people who are not like me. What was the among the Israelis that you chose? Well, I'll tell you one thing I did find is there's many Israelis, look, if they really didn't want to take part, they wouldn't have called me to join our meetings. Mm -hmm. But I would tell you this, I've definitely had Israelis who call me to say, I want to be part of your program. I want to represent the settlers or, you know, whatever it is. And I realize once they're in front of the crowd talking, they're really not there for any kind of a dialogue. They're kind of grandstanding and like, you know, now's my chance to convince these naive people of mm. how we're right and the Palestinians are wrong, you know, whatever it is. And I tell them, I say, listen, part of this is it's a dialogue. You want people to listen to you. You have to learn how to listen. You can't expect right. people to listen if you don't show that you have an ability to listen also. It's just not a conversation. You're not even a lecture. And that has changed the Israelis. Because I've had Israelis, mm -hmm. I've had Israelis after doing the program, I say, listen, I'm just, you know, you want me to come and give a lecture and say my piece? I'll do it gladly. You want me to be in a dialogue and actually hear these people with their crazy ideas and take them seriously? Not for me. Okay, so, you know, we, we need the people who are interested in a natural dialogue. My goal is not, I'm trying to get everybody on the same page or get everyone to compromise or get everyone to find the magical solution. It's just that you can't even begin to talk about making peace without the idea of hearing that people have a stake mm -hmm. in different than yours. They have a side that you have to recognize whether you agree with it or you don't. I think it's so interesting that you bring up listening because as I've been doing these podcasts and these interviews, that's the thing that keeps coming up because I've been interviewing all these Israelis and they talk about how we have to hear what the other side is saying. It is imperative that we do. And because there is no way to make peace otherwise, really. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Yeah, when you realize that, you know, the Arab walking down the street, I might never agree with. We might never see eye to eye. And at the end of the day, he wants it to be his state. I want it to be my state. But the reality is, he's not packing his bags and going, and neither am I. We are on the same bus. We do sit in the same cafe, and we do line up at the same bank. I have to learn how to live with them. Mm -hmm. And the only way to do that is by not seeing them as a foreign entity that I have nothing to do with. The more mm -hmm. I get to know them, I'm have the dialogue. And you should know, when I begin the program, I push the participants, and I say, listen, you're not here to just hear a speech. 
this is the person you can ask anything you want. You can ask them what they think about the peace process, about annexation, about God, about Bibi, about Black Lives Matter, about gay rights, about Trump, about- Nothing is off the table. About their girlfriend, like it's it's, it's, it's (laughs) off the table. And the more you just leave room for that very kind of human, authentic conversation, even if they don't talk about politics, they just talk about hummus recipes. Okay, but you know, (laughs) share some of Thank you. Yeah, I think it's great. I think that the more space we leave for these types of conversations, the more we'll have them. Because I think maybe half of the problem is that there aren't many spaces that are allowing these conversations. I think it's so great that you've created this space where it's just really open, non-judgmental, just this all-encompassing space. Yeah, I'll tell you what's sad is I find that I usually have, like I say, a left wing and a right wing and an ultra-Orthodox and an Arab and uh, and an Ethiopian. So I find often the Ethiopian experience in Israel has been with a, there's been a lot of issues of police brutality, very much like Black Lives Matter, actually, racism, um, police brutality, unfair detentions, and Arabs obviously have had experiences with discrimination. So it's so interesting. It's a little sad when I call an Ethiopian and say, listen, we're doing a program in Tel Aviv. You can come and speak about your experiences in Ethiopian. They would say, well, is it being recorded? Who's listening? Is it going to get on the news? Am I going to get arrested? I'm like, listen, we don't record. Arabs and Ethiopians both often have a real fear of, I can't really speak my mind because I don't really know know what the consequences are. So I try to make it a very safe space and make it clear that no one's recording anything, no one's reporting you. (laughs) Speak your mind and the more authentic it is, the more it'll be a real conversation. What a treat for them, I'm sure, to be able to be listened to in in such a safe space like that. I wonder, as a rabbi with years of experience, what is one core value you really hold dear? Core value. Wow, that's a really good question. I would have to say authenticity. The Torah is full of examples of great leaders, Moses and Aaron and Abraham and Sarah, and the Torah goes out of its way in every single case to point out their flaws. They're mm. human beings. Moshe got angry and hit the rock and couldn't come into the land. <laughs> Abraham didn't listen to his wife and God says you should have listened to her. You blew it. And <laughs> the Torah constantly points out that as great as they were, they're human beings. They make mistakes. They're normal. They're relatable. Mm. And it, I think it's a core value we need in our own relationships with each other, just to be able to be authentic and not be afraid and to realize that I might have my own flaws, but I'm not the only one. And we all have things we share and we all have struggles. And certainly in the context of, you know, trying to make an impact on society, Israeli society, the Jewish world, I think authenticity is lacking. And I think I really think it's almost like a magical formula to create real bonds and real connections between people. I guess this is just a question that came up for me. In the Torah, there are also instances where God has human-like qualities or just, I mean, there are times in the Torah that he made a mistake. God, he, as in God, makes no. mistakes. For instance, like Noah in the Ark story, just wiping the world. What, you don't find God regretting and saying, oops, I went a little too far or I was having a bad day. <laughs> right, <laughs> what, right. What you do find is this. To me, the, the classic story that, that sort of shows what you're saying is God comes to Abraham and says, I'm going to destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham says, what? But there's good people there too. And what if there's 50 righteous people? And what if there's 45? God's like, okay, fine, you're right. If there's 40, <laughs> okay, fine. Even if there's 20, okay, you got me. Even if there's 10. So it's not that God is 
not that God made a mistake or he miscalculated. It was that God will sort of set out his decree of here's what's ideal, but it's a conversation. And now if Abraham really disagrees, Abraham wants to take responsibility, God's willing to negotiate. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it, 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 it's not only like a top-down management, I'm God, you better do what I say or I'm going to strike you with lightning. It's, right. let's talk about it. Here's what I want, but if you want to take responsibility, I'm willing to renegotiate mm. in terms of this instruction. <laughs> right, right. That you definitely have. Yeah. What is the best piece of advice you've ever received? Wow. Well, maybe a really good piece of advice, maybe in your years of, of rabbinical school or... I'll tell you a really good one, actually. Years ago, a rabbi in a class asked me as a student, he asked all, he gave all the students an assignment and he said, if, if you could give your kid one piece of advice, and this would be their guiding principle for everything in life, what would be the advice you would give your child? And we had like, whatever, 24 hours to think about it. We could speak to other rabbis and consult and whatever, and, and come back the next day and share our answers. So I really thought about it. I asked a few other people. I really thought about it. And I came with what I thought was, what I thought was a good answer. And the rabbi said to me, he says, bingo, that's exactly my answer too. And it's not only my answer, there's this big rabbi in the 1950s, mm. Rabbi Dessler, who also said it. So what was this piece of advice? It was basically, it's to say, always be in touch with what your heart is really telling you is true. Live a life of integrity with yourself where you're never living in denial you're not creating alternate realities of yeah Mm -hmm. that's really okay because everyone does it or Mm -hmm. that's not so important i'll get to it later or it's okay that i do this because everyone's got flaws right we can spend our lives using all kinds of bad behaviors or all kinds of bad habits and how do we stop ourselves we all have an inner voice every every human being has an inner voice that tells them you know you're blowing. You know that's not true. You know you're not reaching your potential. You know you could be doing better. You know that's not a good excuse. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> yes, yes. And we, always, and, and we unfortunately become really good at just ignoring that voice. You know, it's only a voice. Nothing bad's going to happen if I don't listen to it. I can get away with it. It's not so terrible. The real Would- learning is that inner voice. Would you say that's the same thing as intuition, listening to your intuition, or is it different than that? I'm not sure. It's a good question. I don't consider myself to be a very intuitive person. I'll have situations where somebody say like, oh, it's obvious that guy's lying. I could just feel it. Or it's obvious that that just feels like the right. I'm like, I don't, I don't work mm-hmm. that way. I'm not a big intuition person. Mm-hmm. But I do know that as much as my head is filled with all kinds of theories and narratives and ways of spinning things, I know that if I can kind of put that aside and say, well, the inner voice telling me, maybe it is intuition. Putting away all the voices and just, I don't call it a gut. I call it an inner voice telling me then that's really when I'm tapping into something that's more that's more deeply. There's a story in the Talmud, actually. The Talmud says that before we're born, while we're developing in our mother's womb, an angel comes into the womb and spends the entire time of our development teaching us everything in the world. Our potential, what's right and wrong, what's true and false, who we really are, what we could really become, ages of everything. Then the Talmud says the day that we're born, the angel slaps us on the mouth. That's why we all have a little indent under our noses. That, that, mm. that little indent is from where the angel slapped you on the mouth, apparently. <laughs> we forget it all. And then we spend the rest of our lives trying to recover that lost information. And the idea there really is like we do we know when we're doing the wrong thing. We know when we're mm-hmm. not making potential. We know when we're lying to ourselves or lying to somebody else or making up a story that we know we don't really buy. We have that power, that powerful ability to feel what's true and to impact on. I use that terminology of the inner voice a lot, I think, when I speak about my intuition, because I feel like the inner voice is maybe connected to that, to the higher part of us or to God or to the yes. divine or whatever you want to call it. 
I think we use a lot of the same terminology. Sounds like the same idea, exactly. You know, very often in the immediate moment when I really want something, there's all kinds of other ways in my mind to justify getting something I want and ignoring that voice of like, do you really need that? Is that really fair? Is that really right? Is that really honest? Is that really, is that real integrity? Since you've lived in Israel for, you said 30 years, right? If a college student or a young professional were moving to Israel, what would be your advice to them? Do a lot of homework before you come and really, mm -hmm. really speak to people who have walked that path of making Aliyah and really understand the financial struggles, the cultural struggles, the struggles of just living with Israelis and, you know, just different people, different ways of thinking. There are so many levels of struggle and transition that a person has to go through. And it's different for different people, obviously. Some people are more thick-skinned. Some people are more flexible financially. Some people just adapt to language more easily. I would say definitely speak to a good five or six people who have made the movie you're about to make and mm -hmm. really hear their horror stories and what inspired them. You know, like really the pluses and minuses and really get a clear picture of it. Because I think it's so different for so many people. It's hard. There's no one piece of advice that I would say, you know, it's all about getting a good job or it's all about learning Hebrew. It's all right. about connecting to the right community. They're all, they're all important ingredients, but, you know, different people need things more than others. I have seen people who have made Aliyah kind of like, not exactly spur of the moment, but like a moment of it, they heard a great speech or they saw a movie or, or they lost their job and they're kind of lost in life. Like, I'll just go to Israel and start all over. Those people, no matter how inspired they are, you know, when the reality hits, living in Israel and dealing with the banks, dealing with the government and dealing with just the mess of what Israel often is, it just mm -hmm. it hits and turn around and run home. Yes, that is just a moment of inspiration where moving is, a, yeah. is over a long period of time. It doesn't pay the bills. It doesn't help you deal with angry, angry Israelis or with long lineups right. or, with the, or the bureaucracy or the taxes or the, or the terrorism or the, or the, you know, the craziness right. of the government. And I think Israel in particular is such a unique place. It's unlike anywhere else in the world. So that just makes moving maybe that much more different than somewhere else. The advice people used to always say that I remember when I was almost 30 years ago, it was the only way you'll make it in Israel is you have to really become Israeli. Like go to Ulpan, mm. don't live among Americans, learn how to speak a language, become an Israeli, you know, manage the system, fit in. I think it was true at the time. There are so many Kutznikim, there's so many foreigners living in Israel now. There's so many communities of Americans mm -hmm. living here. I live in Baka, the German colony. You've got French and Americans and Russians and Canadians and, and, and English and South African and you got all, and Israelis, of course. It's, it's, and, and everyone kind of does their own thing. Nobody's trying to become something other than who they are, and, and it works. Well, thank you so much. This was such a pleasure. Thank you for coming on the Career Up Now Socially Distance Close-Up. Israel edition. I enjoyed this conversation so much. Thank you. And hopefully we'll speak again soon. Thank you. It was great being, great being on your show. Thank you very much for hosting and for great. having me. And like I say, anybody's interested in the program, meettheisraelis.com. You can find more information and be happy to be in touch. Great. Thank you so much. My pleasure. All the best.